Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on We'll Always Have Paris. This week, uh, Chris and I got so excited while we were talking about Christian Dior, the romance of his clothing, and the romance in his life, that we didn't notice that uh, we were having technical glitches with the audio. So at certain points, the audio isn't unfortunately as high quality as we would have liked. However, we've tried to cut this to avoid the worst of the problems, and uh, we think that there's still a lot of uh, really fun conversation that we wanted to share with you guys this week. So our apologies for the sound quality. Thanks so much for sticking with us, and enjoy this week's episode on uh, Christian Dior. And now it's time for This Week in Love. So for This Week in Love, we're looking close to home or close to one of our homes, uh, <laughs> in any case. Okay. Because we're always looking close to home, aren't we? <laughs> well, it's not like This Week in Love. Chris and Alice had a fight over who was going to take out the garbage. <laughs> it should be, but our, it would limit our audience. <laughs> <laughs> this Week in Marital Bliss. <laughs> So this week in love, uh, it was Alice's birthday. Happy birthday, Alice. Hooray. I hope you enjoy being 21 and of legal drinking age in America. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that makes me sound great. <laughs> <laughs> the point being, Alice celebrated her birthday with what looks to have been the biggest rager on the planet. Still being a little under the weather, I was unable to attend. I did get exclusive video clips. So as I was, uh, you know, sitting here at home feeling miserable for myself, well, uh, Chris was out singing, um, man, I feel like a woman. Uh, it was actually, it was that was my sister's request, by the way. I want to put that out there. Like uh, <laughs> Katie, who um, is, a, is a listener to this podcast, so... Um, hi, Katie. This is just a shout out to our two <laughs> listeners. We're now doing curated content. It's like a phone call, but only we can speak. <laughs> it's the perfect kind of phone call. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, that, so it was a request. Not that I, uh, I, I was very excited to be singing it. Uh, but yes, I sang uh, Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain, a banger. <laughs> Total banger. Uh, and so I was thinking, you know, in terms of This Week in Love, you know, it's it's for your wife's birthday. There's a present from Katie to her. Right. Perfect present. But I was thinking, you know, that wouldn't be a very good present from Chris to Alice because it's not very romantic. And then I thought, is there such a thing as a romantic karaoke song? And if so, what would it be? So let's open it up to the group. Uh Chris, uh, <laughs> Katie and Alice, you can call in later. <laughs> Leave your thoughts. A romantic karaoke song. So... What like set the scene here? Um, is this a, a like you're in a, a long term relationship and you're doing a karaoke song, or is it um, a karaoke song as a form of seduction? See, only a straight man would see a song as a form of seduction. It makes me think of the Barbie movie where, where she's like, um, "Could you play the guitar at me?" <laughs> And that's what it feels. I've never had somebody sing to me, but I have had somebody play the guitar at me. And it really feels like it's being done to you. <laughs> well, honestly, though, <clears throat> when you um, when you asked this question, um, there was one thing which immediately came to mind, which was the uh, the scene in uh, 10 Things I Hate About You when Heath Ledger sings, you're just too good to be true. Uh, I love you, baby. 
um, from mm-hmm. the bleachers. Right. And that strikes me as it. That, that, that's, I mean, it, it, it's embarrassing. It's not really a karaoke song. He's just like singing it right. with the band. But that's, that, that's a pretty cool scene, right? It's kind of kitsch. He's making fun yeah. of himself. Yeah. Um, he knows it's embarrassing. So that's quite good. That, yeah, I, I feel like that genre of movie, though, has totally taken this thing that only works in movies and made people think that it could work in real life. But it also is one of those things that only works if you already like the other person. Well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> also, <clears throat> any big romantic gesture, guys, uh, for the straight, for, for our one straight male listener who's maybe Alice's brother. <laughs> Um, at this point, I'm learning a lot about our audience demographics tonight. Um, yeah, these only work if uh, if the person already likes you, in yeah. which case you don't really need the big romantic gesture. Well, I think so. I, this It's interesting. I mean, a lot of it, like, so we're talking about, you know, to narrow down what this question is, is that is there something like a romantic karaoke song which would move the person who you're singing it to to like love you more right or like so yeah so let's say it's your situation like somebody you've been married to you've been together what 10 years now something like that yeah but uh you know but but uh, you want to make a romantic gesture to her you're in the karaoke room i think the karaoke room is very important because the heath ledger scene totally negates the karaoke room so does the boom box and say anything which again if you don't like the guy super annoying <laughs> well i think that um it's always like <clears throat> i mean it, inevitably like it it, it it's quite it, it's an embarrassing thing to do <laughs> i yes. think um i think and maybe this is because i am an old cynic but i think that most people don't really like uh displays of like saccharine emotion between a couple who have been together for 10 years like that that's that's my view i'm sure it can it can definitely move some people and people can be like i i you know no i, I think old nice. couples are the best that's so I, I, sweet old couples <laughs> 21 like it's saying <laughs> so it really it, it's, so if you were a different kind of person <laughs> if was a different kind of person it, it really depends on uh on the couple i mean look so we did the footage which was not shown was um <laughs> that uh, alice and i did do a duet of uh, you sexy thing <laughs> well that is pretty romantic i think because it is like a it seems gross to be like that's your vibe <laughs> like in terms of like the energy of it and like the kind of tongue-in-cheekness because <laughs> neither of you sexy <laughs> That's not what I meant by telling you <laughs> to clarify. Um, yeah, so look, I think with all things, it is pretty uh, couple dependent. But then I also realise this is a boring answer. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> what can you sing? Which is just definitely, I mean, I, so actually, what I was thinking was that while it's couple dependent, I'm, I can only think about in, this in terms of fiction, right? And. Okay. Like the, in terms of fiction, you're on board with the story behind the characters. Right. So on the one hand, obviously it's going to be pretty cool if, like, when you're doing the karaoke, you just happen to be amazing at singing. Right. And let's say it's the fiction, and we've been watching as the audience, and we don't necessarily know that the person is 
um, amazing at singing, whatever it is they're going to do. And then suddenly they pick up the the microphone and they belt something out, which is incredible. And that's always going to be pretty sexy, right? I don't know. I think it's I think it's sexier, but also more fucked up of me to think that it it's it's cooler if they're super bad at it because then they're then they're like making a fool of themselves well that was yeah so that was type number two (laughs) of um of the karaoke bit in the movie in which there has to be um a degree of pride and lack of commitment that the person has expressed like this character who's going to stand up and do the karaoke and this is almost like a trope in movies where they get up and they do something which is like super embarrassing for themselves i think that um the one that comes to mind is the scene about a boy when hugh grant goes up on stage and uh, plays killing me softly yes and um, we you, you kind of you love him because he's singing it badly and he's okay being embarrassed and that's a moment that he's moved past and so actually yeah. like the karaoke scene is quite a good moment or a good thing in movies yeah to display the kind of um the evolution of a character i suppose yeah no, it's true. It is. It, it does make for like a good visual romantic gesture. Yeah. It also kind of mixes things up. Um, about a boy, uh, sidebar, just Hugh Grant's greatest role. Just so <laughs> perfect. We get his dark side for the first time. It really feels like him. I really feel like that's what Hugh Grant's like. Um, just kind of cranky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then I also, because um, again, you know, I don't want to be, you know, too boring about this. I've thought of another one. I think just um, Meatloaf's I'd Do Anything for Love is uh, pretty much the... Um, oh, in, and... The, that's oh, going to get any woman weak at the knees, right? The bonus is that the rest of the room is going, but he won't do what? What does she want him to do that he won't do? <laughs> what meaning does this have for them in particular? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think that for me, like the there's no song that could be romantic in karaoke. I do not want to be the center of attention, um, especially as the object of receiving. Apart from, I do anything for love. <laughs> do you have that? I've got it in my head now. <laughs> but I won't do that. <laughs> that being karaoke. Yeah. Um, no, I've been thinking. I was thinking a lot about it, and uh, for my parents' thirtieth anniversary they had a a big party and they asked me to put together a playlist because neither of them at that point knew how to use spotify or anything resembling it and uh they both you know sent me songs uh of you know like that they thought defined their relationship and it was really cute to see the songs that matched up from both lists um and then my mother at the end of her list wrote and that song it might as well be you (laughs) by which she meant it's the song from the end of Tootsie. Um, I don't know this song. <laughs> it's not. It might as well be you. It's. Um, uh, it might be you. <laughs> like I've been thinking, it might be you. <laughs> but then I had to share with my father that she thought their song was called "It Might as Well Be You." <laughs> playing our song. It's called "I'm 39," so why not? <laughs> But I was thinking if, if he had stopped in the middle of uh, the the party and sang one of those songs, and my dad has a good voice, it would have been so cringe. Yeah. And especially because, you know, he's kind of like a, a affable Gene Kelly, but like, you know, doesn't really reveal a lot of his personal life uh, to those around him. Um, it just, I would have had to leave the room. Uh, yeah, I mean, so from the outside, yeah, I mean, I th- I'm not going to say that it couldn't work. Like, I mean, 
actually, I, there's nothing more beautiful than um, this. Isn't karaoke, obviously, but like than a, than a man and a woman making love <laughs> in, in a physical act. <laughs> When a man loves this, a woman, instead of getting on stage and butchering when a man loves a woman, like, when a man, I can't tell if that was great or terrible. <laughs> this is part of your charm. <laughs> I'm going to carry on singing uh, when a man loves a woman now, um, just to play us out. Now, mic drop. Mm. I'm out of the room. <laughs> And now it's time for the love story. This week, we're going to be talking about Christian Dior, the little that we know of his private life, and uh, more than anything, the effect that he had on fashion and America's love affair with French fashion more generally. So, Chris, before we get started, what are the things you know about Christian Dior? I believe you started telling me earlier this week. Um, he's a jazz singer, right? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I know very, very little about Christian Dior. Um, the one thing that you thought you did know? Do I not know it? Um, so the one thing that I thought I did know was that um, that he died having sex. So we're going to get to that um, for sure. Yeah. I've also been to his house in Conville. Um, okay. As part of, the, <laughs> not as a pilgrimage, as part of the research when I was uh, doing the Normandy and Brittany uh. Guide, uh, which is a lovely Art Nouveau house like on the top of the cliffs in Conville, which is like a, uh, a seaside resort in Normandy. Chris's guide to Normandy and Brittany is available now from <laughs> uh, from Moon Guides and all good bookshops. I think. Um, Lincoln, actually, <laughs> Lincoln show notes. I'm actually, actually about to start work on the third edition of it. Would you mm. believe? So it's going to three editions, which means I must have done something right, or something so wrong they needed you to correct it twice. <laughs> <laughs> like damn, sunk cost fallacy, man. <laughs> when you Google Dior love, you end up with a lot of very strange um, Google like autocompletes and top search results because there's not a lot that's known about his private life. So you get the Dior love story with the rose. <laughs> it's all about the perfumes that he created. Mm-hmm. Dior's love story with England because he loved, he was an Anglophile apparently, uh, or England loved him. I don't know. I didn't read those. Um, but the one thing that I want to focus on is his love story, not just with Paris, not just with fashion, not just with some men we're going to talk about, but also with divination. <laughs> Chris just looked like I slapped him. <laughs> with divination. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He saw fortune tellers from the age of 13. Oh, well, you know what? I think I might have known this, actually. This is getting me really boring if this is how the whole podcast goes. <laughs> That's your response to everything. Oh, I knew that. I think I might have known this. Well, sorry. I mean, like, ooh. No, I, I divined it. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Chris has left the building. It's just me now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Um, And she told him, you'll suffer poverty, but women are lucky for you. And through them, you will achieve success. You'll make a great deal of money out of them and you will have to travel wild, widely. So sounds like a good, good fortune to be told. uh, Well, you'll suffer poverty is not a a great start to it. 
and you're going to make a lot of money out of women. <laughs> it could be read in multiple ways. Hmm. Um, <laughs> you'd be really broke, Pim, for a while. <laughs> I worry that that was just my internalized misogyny. Just, uh... <laughs> but uh, he ends up being pretty superstitious. Uh, he would always have 13 models of his collection. He was also obsessed with the number eight the uh, Dior flagship stores in the 8th arrondissement in Paris, the 8th district. Fortunate. I mean, like, <laughs> it's good that he wasn't obsessed with the number 19. Um, <laughs> just a less salubrious arrondissement. Um, oh, what, the 8th? Oh, fortunate that that's the classiest arrondissement right next door to, I mean, some other, in, insert other fashion brand here. Yeah. <laughs> Chris doesn't know any other fashion brand. Oh, right next door to H&M. <laughs> Nike? Um, <laughs> So uh, immediately I was, I was hooked. Immediately I was in love with Christian Dior. But uh, to tell you the story of Christian Dior, we actually have to go back to the 17th century. Wow. So. I love that. G- great opening. <laughs> so in the 17th century, the Paris becomes the fashion capital of the world. And the reason for this is that, first of all, the city is growing at a huge rate. So we have Louis XIV, the Sun King, uh, on the throne. My favorite French king. <laughs> I mean, and name three others. <laughs> name three of his albums. <laughs> Hold on, wait. Um, Louis XIV, Louis XIII. Oh, cheater. Cheater. Some of us had to memorize the whole line of succession. <laughs> I could carry on. Like, I mean, I've got. I mean, I've got 10 more. At least 13 Louis that I could name. Um. Well, there were technically 16 and then some later ones. Um, anyway, he wants to promote French industry. So he decides that the court is going to be wearing French, the French made, French woven cloth, French designed outfits, everything from France. This is going to support the, the merchant class, uh, yeah. in, like in a lot of different uh, areas, from the weavers at uh, Les Gobelins to the... Les Gobelins being a part of Paris. Yeah, part of Paris, where, known for um, their tapestries and their weaving, just in generally. Mm. Um, just in generally? Just in general. Um, and, uh, of course, as the... And then uh, he's, he wants fashions to change a lot so that the, the nobility have to buy more and pour more money back into the French economy. Okay. Right? And so uh, the more that fashion... So all of a sudden, the dress that you wore 10 years ago, even if it's, you know, gold brocade, the most, you know, beautiful embroidered thing, you know, now all of a sudden there are fashions that have to be strictly followed to some extent there have always been fashions but they start changing at this point really year by year and then season by season yeah this is really interesting i mean just i mean okay i, mean, I guess it had to start somewhere but it's also interesting to think that then i guess before louis Quatorze, france was not a fashionable place i can't speak to that necessarily <laughs> but i mean what i mean is is that like because I think there's this sort of like eternal idea of a, of a place or like of France. It's like people think of France and somehow, if, you know, if you make see a movie about it or like a book, there's a sort of a sense that like when we think of Paris in the 12th century, there's still a kind of an aspect of Paris that you put on it. But this is a very much this part of Paris is getting its birth. Well, yeah, then, let me getting its birth. Getting its birth. <laughs> Getting its birth. That's a, a normal. <laughs> we say that all the time in England. <laughs> I can't prove me wrong. No, I can't. I live. Um, 
Yeah, but the thing is, yeah, okay, so we think of maybe 12th century Paris as fashionable. Uh, so you're yeah, living in 12th century yeah. London. How would you know? Because uh, the reason that French fashion also gets a reputation at this time is not just the court, but it's also two means of publicity that have not previously been available. And first, the first of those is fashion engravings, uh, in which uh, all of a sudden you have reproducible images that can be widely distributed. And so not only is the French court known... Sort of early vote you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some of them are like you're doubling as erotic images because you can see like an ankle and so like they show up the shoes. Um, and then you get these miniature dolls, these fashion dolls, and they're like jointed and they're just tiny dolls wearing miniature versions of French fashion wow. that could circulate Europe, really. Uh, and you can kind of order then, you know, a big version of this from a French couturier. But uh, while most people don't do that, mm. more people do see the dolls, certainly. Um, so there's this idea that, first of all, your France is so central to the beginnings of fashion because it's creating institutions around it. So, I mean, like when, we're talk when you're talking about this, it's not like this is taking over from any other industry. This is the birth of the fashion industry. Absolutely. Before this, so a lot of people, like the middle classes even, would be uh, making their own clothes, would be having, you know, clothes made for them by seamstresses, uh, things like that, very kind of cottage industries. Yeah. And then there are, you know, the, the seamstresses to the uh, nobility and the elite. And there are trends, again, as I've said, you know, at one point, coned hats, I've heard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> women. I've seen the tapestries. <laughs> but they took a lot longer to weave than it to actually make an engraving. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. God, you tried weaving 73 questions. <laughs> so, Christian yeah. so, Dior was from a wealthy, like a, a upper middle class family. He studied at Seals Po uh, with the idea of becoming a diplomat. Uh, he later uh, served in the military. We'll get to that. But um, he uh, decided to open an art gallery uh, after he graduated in 1928 instead. And so his father gives him the money for this on the condition that the family name does not appear on the art gallery door. <laughs> no, but he actually handles the work of like like a ton of amazing artists like Georges Braque, Picasso, Jean Cousteau, Max Jacob. Um, but by 1931, it's a Dupont art gallery. Keeping that name deal away from uh, you know. <laughs> what a brand would that be? Time will tell. But by 1931, um, his okay. older brother and mother dies. Uh, sorry, his older brother and mother die. Uh, his father's business collapses. Uh, there's no more money to keep his you know, passion project going, so the gallery shuts. So he serves with the military. Um, and returns to Paris in 1935, where he's selling sketches. So he is, he does have some kind of talent, some kind of interest in art. Um, by 1938, he's hired by the designer uh, Robert Piget, uh, his pronunciation. Um, at the beginning of the war, when the French entered the Allied forces, he serves in the south of France. But of course, after uh, the Vichy government's inst installed, uh, the German army has no interest in keeping him as a military man, uh, and so he returns to Paris in 1941. Uh, you, you probably know this if you visited the house, but his sister, Catherine, was in the resistance 
uh, during the war she was captured. And mm-hmm. she uh, spent the remaining years in Ravensbrück, the concentration wow. camp, until 1945. Uh, later, she he supported her. She lived in the country. And uh, Miss Dior was actually named after her in the flowers in the garden uh, at that house. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So uh, he's working for several designers, he spends uh, some time with Piget. He then goes to work for Lucien Long until after the war, there's French entrepreneur Marcel Boussac who uh, finances Dior's first collection. And this collection blows everybody out of the water. It is incredibly romantic. It is is referencing all of these Victorian fashion points uh, of you know of, of kind of excess and it's you know, this idea of this return to prosperity so he themes his collections but the very first one is at first called after a particular flower but becomes immediately known as the new look um and the later collections so he he really runs the House of Dior, really for just 11 years. So we he's associated with some very particular looks. Um, there's the classic suit. There's the ballerina skirt, which is like the long mid-thigh, um, like almost like an old-fashioned tutu, like one that really... I think I don't goes down. <laughs> then, I'm sure I would recognize a lot of these things <laughs> if I saw them, but haven't necessarily connected them with Dior right. in my mind. Right, and then I uh, just to totally blow Chris's mind. Uh, mind, I am just going to say these, not explain them, and he can look them up later. The H, A, and Y silhouettes that ruled the early 1950s. Hang it back. <laughs> H, A, and Y silhouettes. I know what those are. Okay, yeah, go for it. Well, I mean, you know, obviously one. Of, I mean, this is it's going to sound very basic, but like one of them looks like an A, one looks like an A, one looks like a yeah. Y. So, yeah. yeah, are you joking? Because that that is actually the yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay the silhouettes yeah the silhouettes of them. Um, and actually, at first, French women are like are like I can't believe I bluffed that one out. <laughs> Rachel totally bought it. <laughs> did Rachel buy it or did she just want to keep talking? <laughs> That's always the question you have to be asking. At first, the reactions are a little bit negative from some people because they're going, women are going, wait a minute, like throughout the war, we've been able to show our legs. Now we can't show our legs again. For some of us, <clears throat> our legs are our best features. <laughs> what are we going to do? You're covering them up because his average dress uses 20 yards of fabric. Just huge amounts of fabric. Wow. Uh, if you can imagine, yeah. Uh, yeah well, I mean, presumably wasn't a hangover from uh, kind of like giving it to the Nazis. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's also, I mean, there is the giving it to the Nazis part of it, but there's also still scarcity. Yeah. And he's still just absolutely pushing this to an extreme. Yeah, there's, well, it's sort of like, it, it's leaning into the idea of opulence. Right? Absolutely. And the way he, he gets all of this fabric in is really clever with things like Pleats, you know, he'll do you know a skirt that takes just yards and yards of fabric, make it fit around a waist, a pretty small waist. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, by just pleating it, tiny, tiny hands-on pleats. Um, his dresses, Coco Chanel famously says they don't even fit in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she says she says some meaner things. She says no one likes you, Coco. <laughs> he says she says Dior doesn't dress women; he upholsters them. <laughs> 
that's quite a good line, actually. I know. But then she continues, uh, look how ridiculous these women are wearing clothes by a man who doesn't know women, never had one, and dreams of being one. Wow. Which is a bit... That is catty. Harsher. Yeah. Um, and uh, he replies... Hey, but also, like, good for you, Christian Dior, if that is your your vibe, and you should still be allowed to design dresses. Like, yeah, <laughs> for real. He also, he also did an incredible amount for women designers by employing them in his studios. Uh, mm. There's a great Vanity Fair article on that. Google it. I don't have the energy to put it in the show notes. Now, now I have to. Um, <laughs> But he responds, I, I think of my work as ephemeral architecture dedicated to the beauty of the female body. Mm. So the way... That, so I, like, this is a real, like, it's a kind of counterpoint. There's a... Um, <laughs> the female body is not beautiful. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about eph ephemeral architecture. And I'm thinking about the French um, patisserie tradition. And I think there's a patissier, like one of the first ones, I think his name is Le Varenne, um, who described... Um, patisserie as a form of architecture mm. uh, i mean he would be making obviously kind of huge sugar sculptures but it's just it's fascinating they would also be ephemeral and the connection between patisserie patisserie and like high fashion is i mean maybe not direct but i think it's definitely yeah they're there. kind of mutually exclusive <laughs> in some cases but uh, Vogue at some point actually does an article in the 50s about how would you even go about getting a Dior? Because immediately, almost immediately, there are knockoffs of his work. Mm. Just uh, all over America, you can get someone for 20 bucks, which is still pretty expensive for a dress at the time. But it's not what you'd pay for an actual Dior. And no, I don't know the prices in today's dollars or francs or whatever. Um, there are no today's francs. That was a trick question that you asked me imaginarily. <laughs> We've got inside Beatrice's head. <laughs> the idea is you, the, the, they say you, you show up fancy, you show up in a chauffeured car, preferably a Rolls Royce, and if not that, at least a taxi. That's an accessory, but yes. <laughs> now then you sit down and, and you, you have an appointment, obviously, and they parade live models in front of you wearing the current collection. So you're not... This is this is where the term like off the rack comes mm. from. You know, most things today, even if you walk into there's Chanel off the rack and then there's Chanel haute couture and off the rack is like something you could literally buy in mm. a store right there. Um, this is not off the rack. These are like <laughs> they hired models, 13 models to come parade in front of you um, to parade these clothes in front of you. Uh, and then you go in for several fittings. First, they model like the they model the dress with linen. Um, usually, like you can potentially, if you're sample size or model size, try them on in the store right there. Uh, but that doesn't usually happen. Usually, they do uh, uh, like a mock up in like a cheap fabric mm. first uh, to get your sizing right, and then you go in for the actual outfit. You get several fittings, um, and this is huge with celebrities. Marlena Dietrich only wears Dior, only. Mar Mar uh, Marilyn Monroe uh, wears a lot of Dior. Margot Fontaine, the ballerina, uh, wears Dior. And Princess Margaret becomes actually first known as a fashion icon uh, when she has a picture taken wearing just an enormous Dior uh, ensemble. I, I mean, like I assume that, the, I mean, there are other fashion houses which are on the up and up at this time as well so dior is sort of like one of the most popular of the i mean there are but dior is the like the one to beat 
okay. this time. He is the one who pretty much single-handedly revitalizes French fashion. Okay, wow. I mean, Scaparelli comes back and she's huge at this time too. Um, there are, of course, other houses that are uh, being founded at this point in France, but uh, Dior is absolutely the one to beat. Mm. So yeah, Dior is like top dog at this point. And to really put this in perspective, that's actually a great transi transition into the next fact I wanted to give you, which mm. is that, so he starts the fashion house in 1947. By 1954, uh, he's exporting uh, $15 million worth of materials. Uh, sorry, worth of, worth of clothing. Which I'm guessing is quite a lot. <laughs> That's two-thirds of France's foreign couture export. So he's like he's got the majority share as a, like a one-guy... He's, he's not one-guy studio. He's, again, following all of these regulations that were set about what makes a, a so, I mean, house. Like, he's blowing uh, Coco Chanel out of the water here. I don't want to make Coco oh, yeah. a baddie in this, but... Coco's definitely a baddie. Like, we can't even marry, fuck, kill her. I, <laughs> although at some point we should do her love story with the Nazi and actually get to the bottom of this. But um, I don't think that she's around for that much longer. Um, Oh, she does it so in 71, so I guess she is. Yeah. Uh, Oof, oh, wow. wow. Shade on Coco there. <laughs> so, um, um, but so a few examples. She's of, just not part of the picture anymore, darling. Right? <laughs> it's all Dior Dior now. <laughs> Chanel, what's that? I mean, <laughs> who's she? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, she probably accounts for a huge portion of that remaining third of foreign couture exports. Well, yeah, you know, it's not 66%, darling. <laughs> I, guess, I, uh, I know, and she's going, I invented women wearing pants. I invented <laughs> this. Nazism. I don't know. I don't know what she sounded like, but uh, we'll probably just like find that. out on a future episode. <laughs> so there are just they're three kind of uh, iconic Dior pieces that I want to describe, not to you because they won't mean anything to you, but <laughs> <laughs> to, to the audience in general. The iconic Christian Dior, uh, actually, this will be more fun if I Google them and then have you describe them right? Okay. <laughs> and then I actually tell the, the audience what they oh, are. So this is the look, the new look, the that makes Dior his name. So if I can have you describe what you're seeing here, Christopher. Okay. Um, whew, well, um, it's um, it's a model wearing. <laughs> no, already wrong. It's a mannequin. <laughs> it's a mannequin. Uh, the mannequin is a feminine-looking ma mannequin. <laughs> but what what's the feminine-looking mannequin wearing? You ask. Well, a hat, um, <laughs> which looks a little bit like a kind of trendy lampshade. Mm -hmm. um, then a white jacket which is cinched in at the weight the, uh, the waist yeah it's ivory but yeah um, an ivory jacket which is cinched in at the waist um sing single breast jacket i guess um with i would say kind of like uh jackety vibes <laughs> uh, she's in, um uh, black gloves which are just black gloves i can't really say anything more about them and then a skirt which uh it, kind of like a the uh, three-quarter length skirt uh in uh like it's a ballerina skirt ballerina skirt that's the ballerina <laughs> skirt uh a silhouette <laughs> 
ish. Yep, yeah. with kind of a low heel. That wasn't bad. Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this is what he becomes famous for. It's called the bar suit. I'd love to see a kind of like you know one of those police artists you know, <laughs> draw the uh, draw the perpetrator based on. Yeah, that this is a fun game at home. We're going to do it for two more uh, outfits. Yeah. So the the main thing about this is that there's so much silk in in this, and silk is actually something that is in shortage in France during the war mm. because they use it for. Parachutes. One better than my class, indeed. Yeah, we have the cinched waist, but we have padded hips. They're literally, he's literally uh, emphasizing the kind of traditional ideal of a feminine figure here mm. uh, by building out the hips. And this actually goes back to like the, uh, excuse me, to the 18th century, to the 17th century, when you would actually, when women would actually have uh, mm. like uh, rolls that they put around their waist. It's to- a great, it's a great callback. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, like, yeah, it's, it's riffing off like, well, at least what, I have seen in period dramas of what fashion exactly in the 17th, 18th century. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So the hips are padded and we have a shawl collar. This is a place where, uh, so, I mean, you can imagine that just means like the collar is really wide and it's notched, which becomes a signature look. But what that really means too, is that they're using up again, he's using up a lot of fabric Mm. on something that you don't need to use a lot of fabric for, you know, you can have a very narrow collar. But he's like, let's waste the fabric. Let's do it. The necklines are curved. This is all about curves, right? Dior's. It's so fascinating as to kind of like, I mean, we talk about all of these other people who are kind of bringing France back into the conversation in the 1950s or like after the 1940s. But I wonder, like, is he really doing the lion's share here? I mean, you know, Sartre de Beauvoir. Yeah, you're just chatting in cafes, guys. Like, the image of France is being created because, I mean, like you look at that picture, and yeah, that looks like it looks like fashion, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, the jacket's jacketing. <laughs> really, really giving, really giving jackets. Really like jacket. <laughs> okay, so let the next look here. I try and be faster on this one. Just, this one should. I'm going to shut my eyes. I'm going <laughs> to uh, tell me when to open them, and I'll just do it in seconds. I'd try and do it in under ten seconds. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, okay. Uh, now. Uh, it's a dress. It's a blue dress. It's a ballerina dress, ballerina style, um, with a kind of like like laced top bit to it is that a lace top or are those just creases no, in the fabric those are pleats uh yeah pleats in the fabric i think i've i've done more than my 10 seconds there. <laughs> that <wasn't right>. um <laughs> so, it's a dress guys <laughs> it's a blue dress made out of silk uh yeah it is silk this is the show from uh 1947 i believe as well uh here he's really going against war trends of the padded shoulder, this idea of women padding their shoulders, really in a lot of ways, uh, because you have women in uh, like the American army, I know for the first time, uh, you know, in any official capacity. And uh, Mm. the idea is that you want to avoid fraternization. So you want to make them look as masculine as possible. So we're going to use up some of these, this like uh, this, 
precious fabric on making your shoulders look like a man's so that nobody wants to fuck you, (laughs) 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 which is a good argument against shoulder pads. That was all inference. I don't know if that's actually fashion history, but uh, (laughs) I I think the idea is that they're trying to make, they were trying to make the uniforms look as much like the men's as possible. Kind of masculinize the uh, the women. Exactly. Yeah. so here, you actually, we, we're moving away from shoulder pads. Thank God. The so it's, 80s, it's a sloping shoulder. It's a what sloping I shoulder. Exactly. <laughs> um, the There's what they call raised bustling. So again, you have these pleats. You have this kind of higher waist that makes your legs look really long. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this voluminous skirt. There's actually... 13 and a half yards of fabric in that skirt. Wow. Uh, it's incredibly sculptural. This is the yeah. one that's pleated so much. 13 and a yeah. half yards. Yeah, these things are incredibly heavy. What's that in meters? That's like... Uh... <laughs> oh, you snob. Okay, 13 <laughs> Not <a> snob. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're... Because you use feet in England. We do. We use feet in meters. We uh, we don't know where we're at. You know. so, um, um, it's it, like eight it's, meters, I would guess. No, it's it's uh, twelve and a bit meters. Twelve and a bit meters of yeah. fabric. Yeah. No, no way. Yeah. I absolutely. That's so much fabric. Yeah, it is, and the whole idea is we're so prosperous. Look at what we can do. Yeah. Um, is he the new Sun King? We'll get Ooh. to it. Okay, the final. Uh, okay, so uh, just a side note that uh, images of all of these will be available on our website or links to them because these are very strictly copyright protected in a lot of cases. So this is a black and white photo. Oh, my God. Um, uh, there's a lot of fabric. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, look, it, just very quickly, it's kind of it's giving samurai to me. Um <laughs> I can't tell if it's like one dress and a jacket. Yeah, or it's a dress and a coat. It's a dress and a coat. Um, I can't really tell where the dress, but it has a, um, there's definitely a name for this like horizontal uh, chest collar thing, <laughs> like the the cut of the the neckline. That's what it's called. It's a horizontal neckline. That's what I'm going to call it. A square it. neckline. A square neckline. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then the coat is very poofy and big. Okay, so this is, uh, yeah, not bad. This is the Pisanel. And here he's starting to play with textures a bit. The top, uh, you can see, is actually made out of velvet, whereas the coat and the skirt are in satins. This is a cocktail dress. And in this moment, he's inventing a new kind of dress. Mm. He's inventing a market for a cocktail dress, which is a dress that you would wear. It's not an evening, it's not an evening gown, but mm-hmm. it's also not a day dress, right? Mm. So it, he's doing the Louis XIV thing of creating a market by the feeling filling a niche in the market by going, well, if you're just going to an apéro to a cocktail party, what do you wear? It's evening. You can't wear a day dress, but you're not going to wear a ball gown. What are you going to wear? You're going to wear this elegant uh Thing that, so you, you have the shorter dress, but with materials like velvet and satin that are usually reserved for evening wear. Yeah. So he can charge an arm and a leg for it. This costs way more than a day dress. It's also amazing the way in which like fashion is so kind of linked into capitalism as well. It's like, what space have we got to sell in? And it's like, hey, 
you know, what do people wear to cocktail parties? Let's create demand for this thing. I, look, I mean, also, who great. knows if cocktail parties even existed before the cocktail dress? <laughs> Is it a chicken and the egg Sarah in such a scenario? You know, I mean, how many how many cocktail parties have you been to where they're already serving cocktails? Am I right? They're, uh, <laughs> you know, usually they're serving prosecco. I don't know. I mean, that's just uh, <laughs> I've got hours of this uh, observational comedy. <laughs> Look, I just rewatched all of Seinfeld, and you're not far off. These are these are the level of jokes he makes. <laughs> Look, groundbreaking for the time. He was the impressionist of his day. So again, to return to Valerie Steele, the problem with this kind of clothing is that the average American woman at this time is five foot three, weighs 133 pounds. So um, that's 13 stone seven. And uh, has a 35 and a half inch bust, a 29 inch waist, and 39 inch hips. In other words, she's short, uh, not not very short. That's my height, and that's obviously average at this point. <laughs> I'm like a malnourished person from the early 20th century, guys. <laughs> but um, the but fairly. Uh, fairly different from the very tall, thin models that we're seeing and mannequins that we're seeing these clothes on. Okay. If you can imagine, say, like me wearing a dress that hits me mid-calf, again, I'm going to look very, very short wearing that dress because it's going to cut me off, uh, especially at the widest point of my calf. So if you're not very, very thin, uh, these clothes make you look fat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is an issue. And if you're not very tall, uh, again, they, they have to be tailored to you. Princess Margaret's not very tall. Yeah. Uh, and clearly, I mean, these are tailor-made. Well, so now I'm wondering, was he the person who almost decided that this was the body type for fashion? No. For uh, most of the 20th century, actually since Chanel, mm. this had been the ideal, like this boyish figure. And the reason for that is simple. It's that uh, it, it's as close as you can get to showing the um, the clothing like on a hanger, basically. Yeah, yeah. The clothes it, it shows do off the, the speaking clothes. rather yeah. than the, the person. You're not dressing the person. You're allowing the clothes to just so you can be more of an It's more of a blank canvas. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, by the time that uh, these most women see these off the models uh, and on themselves, they've spent, you know, the equivalent of $100,000 uh, well, getting them tailor-made. don't have much sympathy, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, so, but the, the, the idea is that these don't look good on most bodies, right? right? Um, the, they can be tailored in certain ways that make them more flattering uh, for certain forms. But uh, again, you do have to have kind of the Marlena Dietrich build. Again, she's not also, she's also not very tall, but she is very thin mm-hmm. um, to look good in them. You can be curvy though, which, you know, Chanel's uh, kind of boyish look from say the twenties and thirties isn't necessarily letting you do, which is why like Marilyn Monroe looks good in these, which is why Princess Margaret, uh, you know, looks good in these clothes. But again, he's slightly, I mean, following a fashion, so to speak, rather than creating one in that situation, or is he kind of pushing that vibe harder than other people had at the time? I think it may be just a byproduct of the types of clothing that he wanted to create, you know, this Mm. ultra romantic excess. If you put a lot of fabric on anybody who's not 
absolutely what's the word like ectomorph and very tall mm, they are going is a great word they're, they're going to look like upholstered right yeah like, yeah they are going to look like a sofa <laughs> like a hundred thousand dollar sofa <laughs> that wasn't wrong <laughs> so you know it's tricky i mean i love these dresses so much well knowing that uh the third one I could probably pull off because it's it hits at the knee. Um, so I will be waiting for that. Uh, Alice or Katie, if you want to uh, get me an original 1950-whatever uh, Pizana. But uh, yeah, other than that, uh, again, there's a reason that uh, these need to be tailored for specific bodies and that knockoffs don't look very good on people in general. Um, so, uh, Dior dies in 1957. Um, at the time, his, uh, his assistant is Yves Saint Laurent, who has been his assistant since 1953 wow. and becomes the head of the house after his death. So, <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> so in the meantime, so that's America's love affair with the new look. Okay. This is everywhere. I mean, to the point where we don't even call it in France, like le nouvelle, uh, I don't even know what you'd say. Le nouvel look. You just say it's the new look. You know, it's still, you use the yeah. English, even though he's a French designer designing mm -hmm. in France. It was just so big in America. And of course, the money is coming from America. He's huge in exports, mm -hmm. uh, as I was discussing earlier. Uh, and he's huge in England as well. So it's interesting. He must have been selling something of, of France, though. Like, I mean, you, you think. This almost call back to Louis the Fourteenth. Maybe I'm stepping on what you already. No, no. I, I I think on some level, it's calling up that legacy more than maybe Louis the Fourteenth's uh, fashions in particular. But it's calling up that legacy in terms of um, in terms of the excess, mm -hmm. in terms of something so new at the time, in terms of. Um, you know, inventing these new style, like inventing these new needs, inventing, you know, identifying, mm -hmm. creating niches in the market. Uh, but I think just the romanticism of it. I mean, these are very beautiful, sensual, like heavy clothes. You know, mm -hmm. you're not just throwing one of these on. This may take, you know, multiple people to help you get into. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly. So uh, as for Dior himself, so we talked a little bit about his background when he began designing. Um, and he's certainly fascinated artistically with the female form. Uh, his sexuality never publicly disclosed. A lot of the following information is from a 2002 article uh, by Tim Blanks in the New York Times called The Last Temptation of Christian. Um, I fact-checked where I could. Great title. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> a little bit like in a lowbrow. I like it anyway. He publishes an autobiography shortly before his death. He doesn't talk about kind of love, his love life at all. Um, there's one line in the second to last chapter. You can tell I'm paraphrasing here, like to not totally plagiarize this article. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to avoid saying penultimate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, where he talks about a friend, uh, he and P.F. Cole, who had managed the shop um, next to the gallery um they had become in quotes intimate friends for we both place the same high value on friendship i think this could be projecting i don't know that uh, for a closeted gay man at this period if you would actually want to name somebody who was a former lover 
uh, as an intimate friend, um, or perhaps you would, you know, to be able to recommend somebody important in your life in some ways. Um, but a lot has been read into this single loss. So we don't know really a lot about all of it, like any of his love affairs. Um, he, he had several. Uh, they were very discreet, uh, except possibly with this man. Uh, but we do know about his last love affair. And so uh, Dior is somebody who has a complicated relationship with food. He is an absolute gourmand. But to the point where a lot of people have speculated that he had a disordered relationship with me. And I really, really don't like the idea of uh, projecting, uh, psychoanalyzing somebody who is not here <laughs> by non-psychoanalysts, psychologists. So let's leave that aside, uh, except to say... There is a ton of writing on his love of food, actually. Mm. And uh, so he... He has several heart attacks. He has two heart attacks. The first is in 1947 when his fashion collection, the new the new look, launches. Um, he is known for kind of eating throughout the day. Um, so he'd have uh, breakfast in bed. Then he'd go downstairs to uh, eat a second one while standing at his mother's portrait which is very hard not to psychoanalyze. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> We're going to leave it there. Um, he would then consult his psychic, um, Madame Delahaye, who was a very, who was a very close uh, friend, consultant, business associate, um, and he would spend the morning planning out the day's menus. Um, in the Times article... The guy's an exception. Oh, yeah, he's definitely an eccentric. I don't know if you've heard of this so far. I didn't realize. That's some eccentric behavior right there. Look, on on the scale of fashion designers, I think eccentric is probably the best you're going to (laughs) get. Extra, I mean. Yeah, he's a little bit extra. He's a little bit extra. Um, The New York Times article says, uh, and again, this is you can really tell this was written in 2002. Every crush seemed to end up in the standard let's be friends scenario. Then it was back to the hot fudge for Dior. So it was a little rough, uh, a little rough in terms of, again, the psychologizing of like this idea that he was eating to fill a romantic void that wasn't there. It could be that he just was unlucky in love or very discreet in love. And there's just, we just don't have documentation or anybody willing to talk about it. And he also loved food. You know? Right, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, we're talking about Paris in this time when I'm sure that, like, being gay was not easy, but I would have thought that, you know, in the circles that he was in, easier than it would have been in other parts of the world, at the very least. I, uh, I I think to some extent that may be true when you think about, uh, say, the upper classes in England at this time, because he's certainly his clientele is the upper classes. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course. I, I don't know much about the French upper classes, say, in the 1950s. So I guess that's interesting because, I mean, we've obviously talked about, like, you know, Gertrude Stein, James Baldwin. Right. Um, in which sort of, like, the world of, of Paris uh, or Paris Bohemia is one in which you're like 
allowed to express yourself in effectively quite contemporary ways. Or right. I, I, I think the, the quote is beauty, freedom, truth, and love. <laughs> Shout out to Nav. That's But yeah, but then he, he's really working in a, like a different, uh, circle to these people. He's existing in a very different world. He's not, not a con- he's a contemporary of them, but he's not a uh, he's not in the same kind of sphere. He's dealing with a, an upper class French, right. uh, yeah, clientele in English and American. Exactly, and I think at uh, this point too, a lot of these women are the, the money comes from their husbands. Mm. So I think their husbands would have. Uh, probably some opinions on where they spent huge amounts of it, possibly at which designer, you know, if not on the clothing itself. Yeah. I can imagine a lot of them describing the clothes uh, in, you know, even slightly more generic terms than you did. <laughs> ah, the blue dress. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, this has a hundred yards of fabric. <laughs> this took 16 blind nuns a year to make. <laughs> well, you can't tell it from looking at it for 10 seconds about all the blind nuns. I would have said 14 blind nuns. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a 14 blind nun dress. So. <laughs> Okay. Uh, no, bl- no, no line nuns were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yes, so I mean, we want to make clear that, that, was a, that was a joke. They're uh, you know, it's not, it's not historically <laughs> accurate. There are no blind nuns that were <laughs> yeah. used. I don't believe anyway. I'm just speculating. <laughs> yeah. So, in 1956, uh, Dior meets uh, Jacques Benita, who is a Moroccan singer. He's 25 years younger. So Dior was born in 1905. Benita was born in 1930. And uh, within a couple of months, they are just madly in love. Uh, to a biographer later later on uh, in Benita's life, he said uh, at a certain point uh, early on, we no longer parted. We wanted to live together. Everything seemed so simple and obvious. And uh, I read that and I was thinking, well, it's tempting, A, to romanticize things in retrospect, but also B, to, you know, to try to make more of, you know, perhaps a passing affair than it was when it was with somebody so famous and et cetera. But Catherine Dior actually said later that she'd never seen her brother as happy as he was when he was with Jack. Mm. And so that for me carries a lot of weight because uh, clearly he was very close with his sister. um, And uh, her word, I think, carries a lot of uh, power here. The New York Times has uh, had a slightly different take here. Right. And this is the 2002 article. The 2002 article. Um, so, uh, again, Tim Blanks. Uh, Benito was a young man with a daddy complex. All he required of Dior was the unconditional love that he could give him, which tended to unhinge the designer's inner circle, particularly his amanuensis. Amanuensis? Who knows what that word means? It's uh, the person you pay to. I don't. It's like your assistant before, but they don't want to go. And, uh, really? What? Oh, you don't know what? I it, really don't know what that means. Oh, it's okay, it's, it's, it's it's like when an elderly woman in say like 1900 would go on a boat journey but didn't want to go alone. Yeah. She would like pay a traveling companion to come along, and it's like more than a lady's maid because they would like do your fort correspondence. I think of them as the person like pushing the wheelchair. Or being like, oh, like, you know, oh, Grace, go fetch me my scarf. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, person. Yeah. yeah. Right. So he has one of those called uh, Raymond. Uh, <laughs> position open. New, new life goal. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Mary Vakil, Emmanuel says. <laughs> Hope we're not just repeatedly saying this wrong and annoying somebody out there. <laughs> um, Raymond 
Zenecker, who is used to her employer's infatuations being a little more mercenary and therefore controllable. So a lot back into that sentence. He goes on, Benito wasn't like that, and Dior, for the first time ever, was suddenly prone to public displays of affection. Uh, no karaoke is mentioned. <laughs> says, but at the same time, he grew ever more acutely aware that he cut a less than impressive figure beside his much younger lover. So this isn't highly evidenced in the article. I'm not sure where this is coming from. Um, it, it's possibly true there is a big age difference. His weight fluctuates uh, a lot. He's generally pretty, uh, I'd say, of average build, uh, you know, not uh, particularly striking in either direction, especially given his love of very, very rich food, uh, that uh, we didn't even go through the rest of the day. But uh, if you have to plan your menu every day uh, after your second breakfast, <laughs> he loved food. Um, so it's October 1957. He's just had a huge success with his latest collection, Spindle, but he's exhausted all the time. His doctor's ordering him to take breaks. Uh, he has a like a room off his office, but... Uh, Again, according to the article, once Dior retired there, all he wanted to do was eat chocolate. Again, not sourced. <laughs> um, so I'm this. I, I think this guy is. Oh, this writer is also working out his own issues. <laughs> I have no problem saying that on the air. Um, all this time, he's still consulting Madame uh, Delahaye. Uh, he thinks, okay, I need a break. Right? He's going to Italy. So he decides to go to Tuscany, in particular to a place called Monticatini, which had been a curative, uh, I'm, I'm trying not to plagiarize because I just have these quotes here in front of me. So this had been a, a kind of a spa resort for centuries, since the 14th century, I think. Uh, everybody from like Douglas Fairbanks to Grace Kelly had gone there to, you know, take the waters. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was a quote, <laughs> take, take the waters. But uh, what else am I going to say? But uh, Madame Daly tells him not to take the trip but he decides right. to do it anyway. And she says, you'll, you'll never come back to France. And she ends up being correct. So <laughs> she publicized that. Like, I told him not to go. I said, <laughs> I said to him before he went, I said, don't go. <laughs> he said, I'm going to go. So I said, I'm a medium. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> so for one last time here, I will quote um, Mr. Blanks, who says, a little more liver function, a few less pounds. All in all, a more attractive package. That's all Dior was hoping for. Benita insisted he loved him just the way he was, but that was insufficient reassurance for an older man enthralled to someone much younger. A further incentive to remake himself had come the night before Dior left Paris, when for the first time Benita allowed him to watch his performance at the Solidor Café, ca sorry, Solidor Cabaret. Mm -hmm. So uh, Benita's very hard to find uh, good information on. But uh, yes, he's a singer and apparently also uh, singing and I'm assuming dancing uh, in somewhat provocative clothing or lack thereof at a cabaret. And uh, again, like, let's not read too much into this. I think this interpretation is, you know, what do we have the facts here? We have uh, that Dior is headed off to Italy and he goes to see his boyfriend slash partner at the cabaret the night before. Um, the trip's already planned. I'm not sure that I see the same 
like, oh my God, look at him up on stage. He's so hot. I must take this trip. Yeah, it sounds like this guy had an article to write. and um, <laughs> <laughs> He had a title and he had a great title and nothing else. He was pushing like a more dramatic arc than perhaps was there at the time. Although I don't know because I'm no. just hearing this now, but that would be my <laughs> So, uh, So Dior takes the train uh, from Paris. On the train, he eats a full foie gras. A full foie gras. Yeah, wow. the full liver, which is about, uh, the author estimates, is a, a pound of pure fat. Um, he then arrives. There are friends, family members around. Um, he plays canasta with them. Um, his, uh, sorry, Benita's there as well. Uh, and then he has a heart attack, supposedly in an armchair. The details surrounding his the cause of his death even are very, very uh, vague and to this day unknown. So the official line is that it was the, the most official line from those who were there. But again, the people who were closest to him said he had a heart attack in an armchair. He just stayed leaned back and died. Um, there was a rumor at one point that he choked on a fish bone and that caused the heart attack. Um, some, uh, Think he might have even died because of a seizure. Uh, the rumor that he died, uh, kind of in flagrante delicto, comes from flagrante delicto. I didn't know that delicto was the end. I always thought it just ended the in flagrante. No, well, maybe your flagrante isn't as delicto as mine is. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. <laughs> I heard about your song. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, this is a socialite and an acquaintance of yours. Uh, I don't know how close an acquaintance. So uh, his name is Alexis von Rosenberg. The Baron de Redi wrote in his memoirs that the rumor at the time was that, yeah, they, that he had died uh, after, after a strenuous sexual encounter. So again, this is the, this is somebody who was an acquaintance reporting on a rumor that was circulating in high society at the time. I mean, I hope that it's true. I, like, like the idea of dying after you've eaten a pound of foie gras and have what she did and then having sex, what a way to go. As long as it's not during sex, that would be the worst way to go. Uh, well, certainly for the other person. <laughs> no, are you kidding? Your last act on earth is to have sex but not come. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> You're just like watching from from above, going. Why? <laughs> I think that's uh, a lot of uh, food for thought in that question. That's yeah. Is it there? Well, I'm I'm reconsidering my Mary fuck kill of the moment. <laughs> Mary heart attack in armchair, choking on fish bone in flagrante delicto. In flagrante delicto. <laughs> And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. So this week, Chris, you have the choice among three things that you at this point understand. <laughs> Is it the H, the A, and the Y? So. Oh my God, you remembered it. It does spell hey, it's pretty easy. But <laughs> no, although now I wish it were. <laughs> just Because you would just do it based on your preferences for letters. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, it is among the fashion of Louis XIV's court. Okay. The fashion of the French Revolution. 
and the new look. Now, for women, this is all this is all for women. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let me think about it. It's, it, it I think. Um, I think this is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Because I think it's actually, I, I think the answer is uh, quite revealing about attitudes towards class. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly <laughs> playing for time here. <laughs> but look, like the... Um, you know, the, the French Revolution was obviously all about kind of dressing down. Right. Um, the, Sans culotte. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the sort of fashion of Louis XIV is, I would assume, kind of like excess, but kind of like like not even knowing that you were going for excess. I mean, obviously you're knowing that you're going for excess and it's it, it's clearly kind of like, that it's not a comment on excess, it's just excess. Right. Um, uh, for everybody who's not British who's listening, that word was excess. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Gaga. <laughs> A close personal friend of mine. Um, <laughs> you should see her grounds. There. Um, uh, yeah, and the, the kind of the, the haute couture of, uh, of Christian Dior is obviously like... Um, that's success with a kind of very knowing wink to the idea of what it's trying to be. And it's working in context of that kind of stuff, at least for him. Mm -hmm. I don't know if like necessarily the people who are buying into it are doing that. Um, so with all that in mind, wow. Oh, fuck it. I'm probably look, just, <laughs> I'll marry French Revolution fashion. Yeah, um, you would. <laughs> my, um, my you can't be asked. <laughs> my general pretense of um, <laughs> working class heroism from a um, incredibly middle class perspective. <laughs> it really, it just vibes for me. It vibes with me. I mean, I'm not sure about the the really weird stuff in the um, the French Revolutionary fashion. Because if I remember it, like there was stuff like kind of wearing red collars and or red handkerchiefs, like pretending that you'd been decapitated. Yeah, like and having stuff, a red like, ribbon around your neck. Yeah, That's yeah. That's funny. I was thinking just the same thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> it does stick in the mind. <laughs> that detail. Yeah, I mean there were a lot of weird things going on in the French Revolution, but still, yeah, marry that one. Um, then, yeah, I'm going to go for uh, fuck the. I don't know. What do you think I'm about to say? <laughs> I think you're going to fuck the, the new look because it's fancy without being just so much fuss. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. <laughs> fuck the new, I mean, like it, it appeals to my. It's enough. It's enough fancy that you would. Yeah. You'd like the textures. Yeah. I know. I mean, like, it appeals to my modern aesthetics as well. Like, I mean, that's what we consider to be kind of like fashionable and it, you can see the traces of that in modern fashion right and it is exciting and glamorous um not something that i'm obviously pinning my life by i'm not that's why i'm not <laughs> marrying it but like there's that secret desire for it and you know despite my relative ignorance about fashion i am like 
quite fascinated in <laughs> fascinated by it so yeah that and then yeah i just as you say like kill um uh kill the louis Ketos things because i just don't have the time for a <laughs> ship in my trick hair. question because if you kill the louis Ketos things think about the timelines you don't get christian dior and you don't get the breath no just kidding how this works. <laughs> <laughs> Even when we did dates, and it's like, well, no, a trick question because if you kill 1789, then you don't get 1968. Because... 1968 actually becomes 1967. <laughs> You've actually ruined the space-time continuum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I gotta mix it up every now and then. So I'm gonna do something similar, except I'm going to marry the the new look, um, but only tailored to me. Mm -hmm. I need it custom made to my body. Um, and I think that I could do like a real, you know, high, low thing with it, you know, mix and match the pieces, particularly mm -hmm. the separates, um, you know, maybe just absolutely butcher the skirts, make them into minis. I don't know. Um, but I'm going to ruin it the same way I'm going to ruin my eventual husband. <laughs> take it and make it mine. <laughs> You're going to take Christian Dior and be like, no, nah, I think you got that wrong. <laughs> Um. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds like my marriage. <laughs> um, I will fuck the French Revolution because yeah, quirky, uh, quirky style, uh, but pretty basic, like a good fuck buddy, but somebody that you're just like, like every day, no, thank you, that's quirky, a lot. Quirky but basic. It's, uh, <laughs> it's my Tinder profile. <laughs> basic but quirky. I don't know. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, but it, it, it's really, like, I wouldn't mind also fucking Louis XIV's style, like the... the I'm sorry, words. I'm just thinking about quirky being fetishizing decapitation. It's a, it's a, it's a quirk. <laughs> it's a real niche fetish. <laughs> <laughs> just as a fashion statement, like, it's quirky. Yeah. Imagine go. I mean, like, maybe the time is right for the coming back of French revolutionary fashions. I think actually like we are now primed for that kind of Do you shit. know what? I bet the story about the woman who like always has the ribbon around her neck though, mm. like the children's ghost story. Yeah. And then like she finally unties it and her head falls off. I bet <laughs> that goes back to that fashion. It, pro it probably does. Oh I've never God. heard that story. But, um, <laughs> well, you have now. <laughs> My final point was that I would actually fuck also the uh, styles of the Sun King's court, um, but it would just take a lot more work, right? And like, if I'm thinking about how much work I'm actually willing to put in, um, I'm very stylishly sitting here in sweat sweatpants and a Barbie movie t-shirt. Um, <laughs> it's a great outfit to be doing a Christian Dior podcast in. So just in terms of like what I'm actually, the, the amount of work I'm actually prepared <laughs> to put in. Um, for, for like a one-time fuck, I could do Dior. Like I, sorry, I could do Louis XIV like one time. But if I'm going to do like a fuck buddy relationship, it's going to be the French Revolution. Um, <laughs> what a weird sentence. <laughs> you know what? I bet those words have never been uttered in that order before. In all of human in history. In all of human history. <laughs> so there it is, your groundbreaking episode of <laughs> We'll Always Have Paris. Nav, we missed you so hard on this one. Um, but it was so fun teasing Chris uh, and really, really finding out what he does and doesn't know about fashion. Here's what he knows. Some things are dresses and some jackets are giving jacket. <laughs> we'll see you next week. 